Namo tassa bhagavatu arahatu sama sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavatu arahatu sama sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavatu arahatu sama sambuddhasa Buddhang tamang sankhang namatsami Last time I um, ever saw Lumpur Cha, Ajahn Cha was in, in Thailand, and uh, it was in 1981, and I just spent a couple of months there, uh, mostly at a very beautiful monastery, sort of quite remote, mountainous area, and. Uh, very special time, very quiet, spacious, um, and living fairly simply in this place. And uh, before leaving, I went, I, I was there, I was looking after a, a very, very old lady <laughs> called Sister Nanda. She was a kind of honorary nun. She, she um, had permission to keep her curly white hair, although she did shave her eyebrows as an act of renunciation. <laughs> and she was a very dear friend. And uh, she'd come all the way to Thailand. In fact, at that time, she wasn't Sister Nanda. She was Winifred, that's what she was called at that time. And uh, she came all the, way to, all the way to Thailand. And she was a well into her 80s at that time, and quite frail, and almost completely deaf, so you always had to speak very loudly. Tiny little woman. And uh, I was just about to leave Thailand with her to sort of, I had to leave then to kind of accompany her back to England. And we went to, to take leave of Ajahn Chah. And he was staying in one of the small branch monasteries, and we were with a, a novice monk, an Anagarika, who kind of went to where Ajahn Chah was to see if it was suitable to, for us to go and pay respects. And Lumpur Chah was resting, it was after meal time, he was resting. And this Anagarika decided to wait till a particular time, and you know, if Ajahn Chah was still sleeping by then, still resting, that we wouldn't disturb him, he, you know, we would leave. Uh, but exactly on the dot, of the time that he was uh, going to give up, Ajahn Chah opened his eyes and sat up. And so we, we were invited to go and take leave. And uh, the only thing I remember that he said, he said to me, he said, 
make sure you remember this time. Don't forget. And that's kind of uh, the feeling I have about like the end of this retreat time. You know, like tomorrow evening we'll have gone our separate ways and a few people will still be here, but the retreat will have ended. And uh, there's obviously a sense of kind of a feeling of sadness uh, in some sense because it, it has, well certainly for me it's been quite a special time uh, being here practicing together with you all. <clears throat> and uh, also, you know, a sense of, of concern really for, for your welfare in the future and just trying to think about what what you can take with you uh, from this time that we spent together practicing reflecting on the teachings of the Buddha, uh, practicing to try to uh, understand more clearly uh, what it is to be a human being, how to live more peacefully and happily as human beings on this planet, more happily, more compassionately, more lovingly, um, with uh, other human beings and with ourselves. So just the idea of remembering this time uh, can be quite skillful. Um, I mean, I've said many times not to linger in the past and not to lean into the future, but we can use memory, we can use recollection in very skillful ways. Just remembering how it's been for us. I mean, perhaps you don't feel particularly calm, but I'm sure that you're an awful lot calmer now than you were when you first arrived. <laughs> and probably um, once you get back into your normal daily life situation, uh, there'll be more activity, more mental activity, just because you, you have more things to think about. You'll be talking a lot more. Uh, you'll be with people. You'll be amongst traffic probably and having to, you know, go shopping, buy food, cook food, think about all kinds of things that you just haven't had to think about here. So it's useful really just to reflect on times when there has been a state of calm and to, to realize that this is possible, you know, that we can experience the mind in a more settled space when the conditions are conducive for this. We can also reflect on the conditions that we've been living in here and just considering uh, what of our experience, what of the way of life that we've had during these days uh, we can transfer into our, our normal living and working situation. This requires a certain amount of imagination, a bit of lateral thinking, because it would probably be quite unskillful to try and uh, establish the whole caboose, to transfer the whole, the whole thing, and 
you know, feel we have to get up at 4.30 and do the morning chanting and <laughs> get in an hour and a half of sitting before we have breakfast even. <laughs> you know, for most of us that's not uh, realistic, not suitable. Uh, But there are certain basic principles that can usefully be um, taken uh, from this situation. I found it very interesting listening to the feedback from different group discussions today and uh, to hear, in fact, the extent to which people are already using many of these principles uh, to support their mindfulness away from this retreat situation. Uh, Principles of simplicity, renunciation, uh, having some kind of routine of practice, using the presets, um, and then other supports for mindfulness, skillful means that you use in your daily lives. And uh, I was very heartened, in fact, uh, to hear the extent to which uh, many of you are doing this. And I thought, really, just to talk a little bit more on that kind of a theme Uh, probably repeating some of what has already been said and and maybe adding in a few more things, um, including things from the retreat and also things from my own experience of living um, in in a monastic situation. There are many, many useful things that uh, can be applied in in a lay uh, context. And I would like to emphasize not to that these are suggestions for reflection that um, you know what works for me and what's appropriate for me is um, probably not going to be appropriate for you exactly the way I describe it. And it's actually very important that you um, actually consider carefully uh, the situation in which you're living and the people that you're living with and have a sensitivity to that because otherwise uh, you can land up being a real pain. (laughs) (laughs) I understand it very well, in fact, because, um, you know, for myself, I mean, I, I know how lovely this way of life is and I know how there's a kind of real feeling that can come, a feeling of inspiration and really wanting to kind of, in some way, um, hold on to what we've had here, to kind of mimic it um, in, in our daily life. Um, because we've, we've found it supportive and helpful in this situation. There's also... Um, 
a tendency to kind of want to spread the good news. <laughs> uh, we found it wonderful, helpful, and uh, we can get a wee bit evangelical if we're not careful. And uh, this is something I, I tend to say at the end of retreats. If somebody asks you, you know, how it's been, um, When you're describing how it's been, you know, if you if you if you begin to tell them, you know, watch carefully how they're receiving it. You know, sometimes people ask that question, and they just really want to know whether it was it was fine or not. They don't necessarily want to know all the details of, you know, the routine and your experience in the meditation and how it was to do this and how it was to do that and, you know, how sister so and so was and how you know all of all of that. Um, I used to, I used had a habit of this when I like sometimes when I was a nun in the monastery I, I used to go and visit my family from time to time and I, I I'd come back I couldn't stop talking I had complete verbal diarrhea <laughs> just the feeling of wanting to share everything uh, and and people aren't always um, ready to receive it. Sometimes people actually, it's important to remember that they too have been having experiences and life has been going along for them during the time that you've been here. (laughs) And maybe they want to tell you about what they've been doing. (laughs) Plus the fact that not everybody understands. I mean, particularly things like basic renunciation practices that we've been doing here. Um... And also, like the the idea of suffering, you know, as I said before, when I first talked to my sister about suffering, she was just utterly appalled. And to realize that not everybody speaks the same language and has the same understanding. So to be careful, to just just to, I mean, don't don't assume that people aren't going to be interested and uh, that they're not going to understand, but really feel it out. You know, try to. Um, you know, as you speak, also be kind of listening and receptive to how how they're receiving it. Much better to just hold back a little bit and uh, have them ask again, you know, several times, um, rather than overdo it. So during this time, we've been practicing quite extensive renunciation. I mean, it might not have felt like that, or maybe it did. Um, But just uh, surrendering to a routine. Um, Not not really having much choice in what we do. Uh, Not much in the way of entertainment. Not many ways that we can distract ourselves. Not reading, at least not reading very much. Um, Not talking. Not eating, except at very, very 
um, specific times, only eating the food that's given to us, like I gather that you've all been having the food offered to you in the same way that we have, you know, there's people serving you, and not really being able to pick and choose very much. And just noticing how that's been for you. I mean, perhaps at first it seemed utterly appalling, like the first evening, um, just over a week ago, when I described the precepts, described the routines. It may well have you know, felt a bit much. I might have wondered how you were going to manage. But now you can actually notice the result of having lived in this way during these days. A sense of uh, lightness, really, um, in realizing that we actually don't have to have a lot of the things that maybe we normally feel that we have to have. Just realizing that we can do without, say, supper. I mean, maybe you feel a bit hungry, and when there's the uh, fragrance of brownies wafting through the house at <laughs> 10 o'clock at night, it can be a bit of a trial. <laughs> but just um, realizing that actually it's quite possible to, um, to live like this. You know, when there's mindfulness, when there's this sense of collectedness, which um, our meditation practice, our silence, has supported. In, in, in our small group today, um, one of the things that I, I was reflecting on is the fact that um, it's much easier to practice restraint in regard to food uh, when there's mindfulness. Like when I'm on retreat, I can be very, very sensible about how I eat, very restrained, um, very aware. Um, but when I'm off retreat, when people are talking to me and I'm getting kind of, my buttons are getting pressed, the tendency to use food as a kind of comfort. And so in my daily life practice in the monastery, I, I sometimes have to make like quite clear um, resolution, aditana we call it this, you know, make, um, uh, you know, deciding to, to um, be mindful, to be careful around these things. You're just making little rules for myself. Um, just from time to time, you know, when I notice that I've got very heedless, very uh, greedy, and when, and one of the things I notice when that happens is my, my sense of respect, self-respect, tends to go down rather. I sort of feel, you know, uh, a bit hopeless. And uh, so just making these little um, decisions about you know, simple acts of renunciation that I can undertake, maybe just for one day, this helps to engender a sense of self-respect and, and also helps me to be more mindful. Today we had the opportunity to practice right speech and then the, the meditation just before this talk, um, the opportunity to see the result of having um, engaged in talking to one another. 
and hopefully uh, the exercise that we did during the afternoon of uh, sharing our experience of Dhamma practice will have um, helped to kind of set a tone, set a theme um, for the less structured speaking time. So hopefully you've been able to uh, maintain a sense, some sense of, of rightness in the way that you were talking with one another. It was certainly a very nice feeling. I, I was, felt a lot of happiness actually just sort of walking among, sort of walking past some of you and just sort of feeling the real feeling of friendliness and interest in one another and in things that were important to, to one another. Very, a very lovely sense of sharing. So, you know, when we came to sit, hopefully there was a kind of feeling of, of wholesomeness, a feeling of uprightness, a feeling of gladness about the way that um, you'd uh, communicated with each other. Perhaps for some of you there might have been a little bit of less skillful speech. I don't know. And a chance to, as we were sitting, to just experience the result of that. There are um, a couple of, uh, I suppose you call them deities or, or, or um, principles in, in Buddhist teaching that I, I always like to reflect on. And in fact, they're included in the sharing of blessings chant, the guardians of the world, the Lokapala is the Pali word. And uh, these are, I don't know if I can get them the right way around, Hiri and Otapa. And one of them is shame, wholesome, a wholesome sense of shame. And the other one is fear of blame. And the reason that they're the guardians of the world is because they protect us uh, from doing anything too dreadful. And these are qualities that are actually <clears throat> very much uh, encouraged, certainly for, as, as, uh, for the Samana disciples, but I think equally for all of you, anybody who's uh, making a sincere effort to, towards liberation, to actually have a sense of um, just really not wanting to do something that is very um, wrong, very much and very unskillful, say, very much against the precepts. You know, just as as we practice, as we develop a kind of sensitivity to suffering, our own and the suffering of others, a real uh, feeling of not wanting to harm uh, any other being not wanting to take advantage of any other being in any way, to exploit, uh, to hurt, you know, through our speech. And this is like the, 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 the uh, sense of shame. You know, we, we just don't want to do something that when we sit down at the end of the day, we'll, we'll have a kind of a bad feeling about it. And the fear of blame is um, like um, one of the, um, when we chanted the Dasadama Sutta, you know, would my spiritual companions find fault with my conduct? You know, 
how how would other people on us, you know, other um, like friends, you know, good friends, uh, our teachers, how would they regard uh, this particular action or or speech? I used to do this like <laughs> at mealtime um, when I was feeling very kind of greedy. Uh, we have certain um, very useful guidelines about how we how we take our food. We sort of we just make up one mouthful at a time. We avoid sort of scraping the bowl. We avoid um, you know making up too big a mouthful of food, sort of stuffing the food in, <laughs> and uh, you try to try to eat in a way that's kind of uh, polite. <laughs> Another story about that, but to stick with one point at a time. <laughs> What I used to do that I found quite helpful was just to imagine, say, that Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Sumedho were standing in front of me, watching me. <laughs> Not um, in a way to kind of make me feel small or dreadful or ashamed or anything else, but just to help me to, um, to perform this uh, uh, action um, in a way that uh, I could feel a sense of self-respect, you know, rather than that I was just behaving like a complete pig. You know, in, in monastic life, it, I mean, maybe it sounds strange to you and shocking to you, but in monastic life, you know, that's one of the few kind of, of the, in fact, it's the only really gross pleasure <laughs> that's allowed. And, uh, you know, if you're very hungry, if the food's very delicious, and uh, if you're feeling quite miserable, the whole thing can be, you know, rather an undignified process. <laughs> so, as I said, we have these training rules to help us to um, to practice restraint. I always find it helpful to know that the food's not going to run away. <laughs> there's, there's no hurry; it'll still be there. No one's going to grasp it away from us. We can, you know, we can take our time. We can eat with composure and mindfulness. But I used to just use the, the reflection of people that I really respected, just imagining them there, to help to support mindfulness at this time. Are there aspects of renunciation that uh, we've alluded to a little bit and people were talking a little bit this afternoon about it? Were just like the whole idea of, of simpl simplicity, uh, simplifying our lives and getting rid of stuff that is not uh, necessary, that we don't use or that we don't have a use for. Um, just the, the, the environment that we live in actually has a very powerful effect on the mind. Um, it may not be particularly conscious, but if we live surrounded by a lot of clutter, it actually leaves quite an unpleasant, unpleasant um, has quite an unpleasant effect on the mind. And during these days, 
I'm, I imagine that you, you didn't bring an enormous amount of things with you. I mean, you know, warm clothes, just basic things that you would need um, during the time you were here. So you've been able to live uh, not surrounded by too many things. Um, perhaps you've been able to kind of, because of this, uh, keep your living space more tidy, you know, putting things away, or just noticing how it feels when things aren't put away. And you may find that when you go home, the impression is, ugh, so many things. Or oh, what a mess. And this is something to notice, not, not kind of with the idea of uh, feeling bad about it, but just to really notice the effect on the mind of the, the living space. And to consider, do I need all these things? Is there some way I can live that's less cluttered? Some people are naturally a little bit untidy, and uh, it can take a real effort um, to tidy things away. Other people are naturally just much more ordered in, in the way that they, um, uh, that they deal with things, that they, that they um, live in the material world. And sometimes we can be, you know, some, some people are completely obsessive about it, and I, I wouldn't suggest going to that extreme. But just to, to notice the effect of um, putting things away, folding things, uh, and, and um, I notice myself when I make the effort to do this, when I come back into my living space, I, I feel very, just makes me feel very good. It's very, it's, 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 it's gladdening for the mind. Rather than when I've just left things in a mess, maybe I've been in too much of a hurry. Another thing that you'll have noticed here during this time is the presence of Buddha images. This lovely Buddha figure here. And uh, it's one of the lovely things about this center is that, you know, in kind of quite unexpected corners, you see these lovely, lovely images in Buddha heads or Kuan Yin. Uh, these images that uh, bring a sense of, or remind us of that quality of, of peace, of calm. Uh, I, I always, I mean, it, I have to admit, it took me a little while to develop a taste for these things, and, and some of you may not share the, 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 feel, the feelings I'm describing. Um, but now I find it really, really gladdening to see these images. So it's something you might like to consider in your own living space to have somewhere. And it can be quite, quite small, it doesn't have to be an enormous image, but you know, just, just something, um, a small Buddha rupa, uh, like, or a picture, uh, something just to remind you of, of um, 
that which is wise, that which is mindful, that sees things clearly, that which is poised and calm and balanced. I remember one of the monks one time, well, it was just something I noticed on one occasion. He was somebody who found it very difficult to be a senior monk, and um, when Ajahn Sumedha would go away, he'd be, the, he'd be the senior monk. And I remember I used to notice, like at the beginning of the evening puja time, that he'd just gaze at a very lovely Buddha that we had on the shrine at that time. And I realized that what he was doing was just actually more or less like internalizing that sense of calm, that sense of poise and and peacefulness. This is something that I like to do, you know, when I'm feeling, you know, particularly if I'm feeling um, a little bit anxious or upset, troubled about something, just to to look um, at, at, at Buddha images, and what you'll find is that some Buddha images will do this for you and others won't. You know, the, the whole, there's so many different styles of Buddha. And uh, I was given a very, very lovely image that I, I take with me wherever I go, of um, quite, quite sort of plumpish, and with this just delightful smile and a kind of little halo. It's a sort of really sort of chubby, really happy-looking Buddha. And very, very kind of collected, peaceful. Not, I mean, I, I also have an image of one, well, it's not actually a Buddha, but it's um, another of the Buddha's disciples who's, who's just roaring with laughter, which I also find is a useful image for me when I'm taking myself too seriously. But this other, this other Buddha is just, he's, he's, not, he's not kind of raucous, but he's just very kind of blissful and, and, and happy. <laughs> and uh, so I find that's a very, very... Um, uh, helpful, very uplifting image for me. It works for me. So, you know, when you're uh, out and about, you know, if you see an image that you really like, that you find makes you feel happy or makes you feel calm, you know, some, some of the images are just more sort of serious, but with a sense of, of calm, of peacefulness. Um, you know, find, find one that you can get along with. And, um, you know, have it somewhere where, where you can just notice it very, very frequently. If you live in a family situation, uh, it might uh, be difficult to kind of have a whole kind of shrine uh, in your living room. <laughs> um, again, this is something that requires sensitivity, um, to the situation you're in. I mean, some of you may be able to have a shrine or just a place that you keep special for, for like your meditation practice and to have a flower and incense candles um, that you light as, as part of your settling yourself in meditation. These settling practices are very, very useful, um, particularly when you live a very busy life. Um, I was struck when I was on pilgrimage, I went to hear some teachings from a Tibetan teacher, um, a very remarkable monk who had undergone the most horrendous torture and imprisonment for many years in Tibet and had come to India and he was giving a series of teachings and I just went to uh, just a couple of sessions and 
the first one, which was like his introductory talk about practice, uh, the whole talk was about how to look after your shrine. It was very interesting, just the amount of emphasis he put on to just caring for the shrine. He just talked about sort of really uh, keeping it, you know, dusting it and really looking, looking after the, the Buddha image, having fresh flowers, um, really taking care of it. Actually, there was one other thing he said that I'll tell you, which was very lovely. He said, when you go to sleep at night, what you can do, and he, he gave one practice, which I forget, but the one that I really remember is what you can do is imagine that you're putting your head into the Buddha's lap, resting in the Buddha's lap, I just thought that was such a lovely image, just the idea of just putting your head in the Buddha's lap, this kind of completely compassionate, uh, kind, enlightened being, and that you could you know, put, put your head in his lap to, to go to sleep. <laughs> anyway, to get back to the shrine, um, the reason that I um, recommend doing this is because if we're too uh, in too much of a hurry, to get into our samadhi after a day at work or a day of interacting with people, we can be um, really setting ourselves up for a big disappointment. And as I said at one time before, sometimes it actually takes a little time of doing things less, slightly less refined um, than just trying to focus on the very fine awareness of the breath. you know, if, if the mind is, is really active, uh, it can be helpful actually to do some kind of physical um, activity. So just like preparing the shrine, looking after the shrine, preparing the sitting place uh, can be very useful as a kind of preliminary um, to our meditation. Similarly, just to bow, you know, to take the time to bow before you sit on your mat and even to do a little bit of chanting, even just like the, just namotasa three times, or the dedication of offerings, or the refuges that we do as part of the um, taking of the precepts. Just these simple things uh, can help the mind to settle. The chanting itself can direct the mind towards the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, and away from all of the concerns and the irritations and the worries and the, of the day and the, the planning of the next thing we're going to do, you know, after our meditation, what we're going to do. You know, the person we've got to telephone, the supper we've got to cook, the conversation we've got to have, the preparation for tomorrow and what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, just you know, recollecting these things either mentally or just, or, or using the chanting as a focus can be very, very helpful. Again, of course, it takes sensitivity if you're living in a family situation or with roommates, people who might not. Um, share your sense of devotion, might in fact be quite put off by loud chanting in the next room. <laughs> um, you know, you have to consider the situation, so it might be a matter of just chanting softly, um, or even just, um, 
you know, it is quite possible to uh, do the chanting without making any sound at all, you know, just to, to, to um, internally verbalize uh, the words. Or with your Walkman, have some headphones. In fact, Walkmans and headphones are very handy. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can, you, can, you can play chanting, you can play Dhamma tapes, uh, you can do all kinds of things with Walkmans. Um, and some people like to play Dhamma, Dhamma tapes when they're um, you know, driving along in their car. Uh, you find that helpful just to uh, bring them into line with uh, their aspiration, uh, partly to reflect on the teachings, partly just to reflect on the fact that there are others who are cultivating this practice and who are offering guidance and encouragement in this that we can follow. We can recollect like the, the, um, the Sangha and can recollect you know, the fact that there are people who are living as monks and nuns in monasteries who've kind of, you know, made this their whole life. And also, um, like, this time together here, during this time together here, we've, we've, we've been a sangha, we've been a community of people practicing according to the teachings. So you can actually bring to mind, um, you know, people that you spent this time together with. You just might remember the face of somebody. Um, just remember that there are others who share our aspiration. You know, particularly if you're in a situation where there aren't uh, people who, who speak the same language, who understand uh, what this practice is about. Many of you mentioned this afternoon the value of having like your own sitting group or um, like group of Kalyanamita, people that you, you practice with or that you can speak with about these things. You know, either people that you live close to or people you can communicate with by telephone or by letter or by email and internet, all of these wonderful bits of technology that are available nowadays. So many ways that we can keep in touch. Having a regular daily practice that we do that is um, suitable to our situation. You know, the amount of time that we have. Um, our level of interest. You know, when I first began to meditate, I actually, uh, I mean, I went through a year or more when I actually just didn't sit regularly on my own, but I would go each week to a sitting group and then gradually develop a daily practice. And at first it was just a few minutes each day and then gradually it extended. So not to feel that, or not, not, not to kind of make a resolution that is beyond your capacity. You try and find a level that is um, suitable, that you can manage. 
but rather than sort of thinking, well, during that retreat I was sitting however many hours a day it was and I was doing this much walking meditation, um, it may be that you are in a situation where you can do that and that's, that's, that's wonderful. But it may be that, you know, 10 minutes a day, 20 minutes a day, half an hour a day is uh, what you can do. You know, you have to know for yourself and also to, to figure out the best time. You know, some people love to meditate in the early morning. Other people, you know, for other people that's just unthinkable. <laughs> and they prefer to meditate at night or in the middle of the day. Or you might like to have just short meditations at, at different times of the day, like, you know, to sit for a short while in the morning and then have a, you know, in your lunch break to have a short sit and then in the evening Again, just little and often. Uh, so figure this out. You know, take some time to really consider your, um, your situation, your living situation, and what's suitable. And then make a, a determination, make a resolution, aditana, to try to maintain uh, that routine. There may be days that you can sit for longer. You may decide to have like a day a week that you can uh, do a little bit more. And that's fine. But to try to establish and maintain a modest daily practice is what I would, I would recommend. It's like a way of like when I, uh, one time when I, I had a chance to be on retreat, and it was just a real strong uh, feeling of wanting to um, maintain some of what I'd received during that retreat time. And so I would make aditanas, resolutions, um, to practice in a way that supports mindfulness. taking advantage of um, opportunities to do retreats, like one-day retreats, half-day retreats, three-day retreats, ten-day retreats. You know, whenever you can, take some time out and uh, come on retreat or um, create your own retreat situation. This is another thing that you can do, either on your own or with other people who... um, would like to do the same, who have an interest. Um, you can offer each other reflections, and you can, like, things that you found useful in your practice, just in the same way that you did this afternoon. Or you can use some of the, the Dhamma teachings from some of the books that we'll be making available. You know, even just to re- read a page, or even just a paragraph of something from Lumpur Cha can uh, provide some very, very useful pointers for practice, can really help you to, to settle the mind, and to really make use of uh, that. 
or taking some of the suttas, passages from the scriptures. And again, hopefully we'll have some uh, recommended reading that uh, you might find interesting and helpful. <laughs>